This What's Trending conversation is brought to you by Henley Business Radio. Welcome to Henley Business Radio. This is a series of podcasts we do with interesting people. We're trying to be a little bit edgy, a bit provocative. My name's John Foster Pedley. I'm the Dean and Director of Henley Business School in Africa. And today, I have the delight and pleasure to introduce Dr. Kelly Sloan, who was a professor, is not anymore, but much greater than that. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, John. I'm very happy to be here. So, Kelly, who is Kelly? Who is Kelly? I would say I consider myself to be a work in progress. I'm an American, obviously, from my accent, but I haven't lived there in 25 years. I've lived in Australia and Germany and the UK, and um, I started out as an academic and then became a project manager, a research project manager. Wait a minute, hang on. So you started out as an academic and then, so what was that about? Where did you start out? Let's hear a bit Um, more. Well, I started out in the field of linguistics. Mm -hmm. I did a degree at Columbia University, and then I did my PhD at MIT with Noam Chomsky, who revolutionized linguistics as well as being a world-famous political activist. Yes. So who is Noam Chomsky? Just give us that for a second. Uh, Well, Noam, he's first and foremost an academic who really is the father of generative linguistics, of modern linguistics, but also has had a massive impact on the fields of psychology and computer science. So, you know, really a fantastic academic. The New York Times called him arguably the most important intellectual alive, which is quite an accolade. And he's critical um, but, of everything. Right, but in he is, great he is, ways, he is he? most known as a political activist. In fact, most people would not know of his work in linguistics, the average mm. person on the street, but he is well known for his critique of American foreign policy. He must be having and, um, a great time oh, right now. I, I, I saw him speak last week at the uh-huh. University of Reading, yes, at, at the age of 89. But Noam is, is quite a powerhouse. Uh, Bono called him the Elvis of the academic world. <laughs> uh, he's, he's, he's quite an interesting person. And the opportunity to work with him and, and do my PhD studies there in his department was a one-of-a-kind experience. It was just a life-changing event. And he mentored you to some degree. Right? He, was, uh, he was my advisor. So uh-huh. when, um, when we arrived at MIT as PhD students, we were uh-huh. each randomly assigned a faculty member as an advisor. And because Noam was my advisor, I had access to him very regularly, not just to talk about my work, but to talk about life and how I fit into the program and stuff. So it was it was really nice. So what rubbed off on you from all that then? What rubbed off on me? One of the interesting things about that experience was that if you went to Nome, who is an amazing intellectual, and you said, I believe in A, he would give you 20 reasons for not A, right? He would tell you why you were wrong. And so we used to go in and tell him that we believed the opposite of what we believed, because then he'd tell us all the reasons we were wrong, and then we'd know what we needed to support our argument. It taught me a lot about being a devil's advocate, um, and about how to present your argument, and how to frame your topic. Yeah, a really good intellectual grounding, with an activist viewpoint, seeing outside the box. Right, and how to, yes, and and how not to be isolated within your Mm -hmm. academic field, and not to be in a silo. And that's actually been quite a big part of my career, is is breaking out of silos and breaking past boundaries that try to separate you into, you know, 
know, into little boxes. And okay. so, so what happened next then? So, ah, so, yeah. so um, I got a PhD in linguistics and I started teaching linguistics. I, mm-hmm. I taught at the University of Arizona. And then I married a Canadian. My husband's a neuroscientist and we moved to Australia. So it was the start of this international I journey. I what Australia means, but perhaps you could explain neuroscientist. Ah, well, my husband's a neuroscientist. He was also a student of Chomsky's. He started out as a linguist. And then he became interested in measuring language in the brain and in modeling it. And so he's also very good at math and physics. And he directs a big neuroscience center with an MRI scanner and is quite interested in cognitive neuropsychology. But it's more than just about language, isn't it? Neuroscience has got elements of leadership inside, doesn't it? Much more than that. Absolutely. In fact, this story is what brought me to Henley. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I worked together with my husband for 10 years at this neuroscience center, which he directed and I managed. So I have expertise in in managing a large research center. At the University center. of Reading. At the University of which Reading. Which is Henley's yeah. parents, It's, actually, it's yeah. Henley's parents, yes. Mm-hmm. This center was called the Center for Integrative Neuroscience and Neurodynamics. And there were about 80 researchers at any time working there, including postgraduate students. And part of my job was to break down the silos. Mm -hmm. So it was to get the psychologists to talk to engineers, to talk to mathematicians, to talk to biologists. And we thought, wouldn't it be great if we could talk to people in the business school? So we went to Henley. I didn't know anything about Henley at the time. And we tried to find people who were interested in talking to us and in coming up with a mutual project. And we came up with this idea of looking at decision-making in CEOs. And who did you work with at Henley? Yeah, we worked with Kevin Money and Carola Hillenbrand, who are in trust and reputation. And Kevin's South African. And Kevin is South African, yes. yeah. yeah. And we worked with Bernd Vogel, who's in leadership and change. And together with them, we had four neuroscientists, experts on brain imaging, Mm -hmm. and also experts on decision-making. And we had a project where we looked at CEOs. Absolutely fascinating project. You're going to tell me that we can chart um, the brainwaves yeah. and the, no, no, it, the neurological true. patterns of CEOs and see how to make decisions. Absolutely. We, Is that right? No, really, truly. We took, we took, I believe it was about 30 altogether CEOs, and they came in for a whole morning and spent an hour in an MRI scanner doing functional imaging, which is where they're taking the pictures of the brain, but while you're performing a task, right? And so the task we had them do was a, it's sort of like a gambling task. They have mm-hmm. to make decisions about things. And the, the interesting thing is that they have to make decisions without having enough information, which is very similar to what CEOs do in real life. But we also gave them social context information of what kinds of decisions other people made in the same task. And we compared the CEOs to a group of 20-year-old college students and to a group of age-matched middle managers. Mm -hmm. So people who were the same age as the CEO and had sort of roughly the kind of background, but who were at lower to middle management levels instead of CEOs. Mm -hmm. And what we found was that The CEOs behaviorally behaved more like the younger group. But when we looked at their brain structures, it's not that they had younger brains, right? Their brains structurally were more like the older group. But the networks that they used in their brain while they were making the decisions were different. They actually used a different pathway. And it's quite interesting. the, The two conclusions that we came to, the first one was that young people and the age match controls used the social information as validation. They wanted to know what other people thought 
in order to validate mm. their own decision. Mm. And CEOs just used it as another source of information. They didn't need the validation. They, the validation came from their gut. And so the way that they utilized the information was different. And the second thing that we came up with was the idea that the fact that they have to make decisions so frequently based on little information, it led them to develop different brain networks to support these tasks. Very similar to the way that musicians, expert musicians, have developed different brain networks for supporting perception of music. So the comparison then between CEOs making mm -hmm. complex decisions on limited data right. and musicians is pretty fascinating. Yeah. Right. I mean, are we talking about classical orchestral musicians? Are we talking about jazz improvisational musicians, right. rock musicians? As you know, at Henley, we have an MBA for the creative industry. We've got yes. plenty of musicians on right, that, yeah. you know, including gospel singers, Louisa Bala and Johnny Clegg's drummer, Barry Van Sale, Naima McLean, who's an urban funk artist. Right. And these people are doing very well in the MBA. So let's see if we can get some insight into why. It's interesting, too, because it also connects with language, right? So language and, and music, we can look at pathways mm. in, in, in the brain. But one of the things that they know about musicians is that trained musicians, they are using different neural pathways are being activated when they listen to music, when they perceive music. And there is a connection to language in the sense that they're using similar pathways to language pathways. So it's almost as if the musicians are using a more structured... So you, uh, you could argue that their first language is music, like a, a great mathematician's first language might be algebra. Right, yeah. It's almost highly evolved ways of understanding and making sense of life. Yes, yeah. It's a very interesting study. And as I said before, it's what led me to Henley. So mm -hmm. I was working on this project, mm -hmm. working with Kevin and Carola and Berndt, and we had a meeting at Greenlands, which is the Henley campus on the banks of the River Thames. It's Beautiful. absolutely gorgeous. And I went there, and my first thought was, I want to be here. I want to work here. And see the swans on a river and see the, swans the regatta. On the river. And exactly. And the interesting thing is that a few years later, my youngest daughter left to go to university, and I thought to myself, I'm now an empty nester. I have an opportunity now mm. to do something completely different. And so I enrolled in the executive MBA, which I've just finished recently. So I have a, uh, an interesting outlook on the MBA because I've been a student, and I was a student you know, after the age of 50. So, well, this you is know. quite a life story. So there you are, into linguistics. You became a professor of linguistics. You moved into neuroscience with your husband. That's a strange change of disciplines. And then you went to do an MBA later on. Mm. What happened next? Well, interestingly, I had this idea that I would do an MBA in order to move out of academics and to go into to some other area, maybe business consulting. And part of the MBA experience is the personal development component. And I truly believe that the Henley personal development component is transformative. Now, come and, on, that's and, propaganda. No, no, right? actually, You're no, saying it's because it's the way Henley, on, No, because you? it worked on me yeah. that way. And, and, yeah. But what it did actually was it made me realize that my first love was teaching uh -huh. and, and that I had drifted away from teaching and that I wanted to get back to that. And in particular, I wanted to be able to share this empowerment that you can mm -hmm. find in the personal development component and share it with other people who were 
at this stage in their life where mm. where they can take a U-turn, where they can make options, where there's space in front of them, and they can veer off into and a different direction. Which is what direction. happens on an MBA. A lot of people come to the MBA, particularly sort of at the cusp of something different. They're about to make a change. But you mentioned the PD bit, which means personal development component of the MBA, which I know has been ranked number mm -hmm. one in the world by The Economist. Why is this not bluff? Why is this really good PD, if it is indeed? Let's challenge that ranking. I would say it's justified. But I think one of the really important parts about it is that many MBA programs try, try to tack on a PD component where they will add a, a workshop or a day or a couple of workshops that aren't really part of the curriculum. But the Henley MBA was actually designed with the personal development as a spine. So you have personal development. It's spread over the course of the MBA from part one so to three So you sense four. personal growth and transformation throughout the program. Throughout the program. Yeah. And it's designed to be synergistic logistic with the stages of the program okay. so that the things that you're working on in personal development support the stuff that you're working on in the rest of the program and that in turn supports your personal development. It's a cycle. It's all supporting each other and it's designed that way and I think it works. I think I'm evidence of the fact that it's worked. <laughs> so and uh, I yeah. always say teach what you need to learn most, right? So you did the PD bit and now you're teaching it. So obviously you're still on your own journey, aren't you? Absolutely. I'm still mm. on my own journey. Uh, but I also think you should teach the thing that excites you, yeah, right. right? And I find it exciting to help people on their journey. Mm. People come to the MBA, to an executive MBA. I think most people come because they're stuck. So this idea of stuckness is really behind a lot of the MBA, and they want to find a route out. But the route out, it has to come from inside. And stuck sometimes because the job they've been in for so many years has only been using a bit of them. Absolutely. And they've been, they've been yes. mining themselves for this particular commodity, but so much more of them has not expressed their creativity or other characteristics. Right. And they're uh, rediscovering themselves in that period when they're really focusing on their exactly. own growth. Yeah. And I think that we tend to to narrow ourselves and put ourselves in a box from a very young age. And I think the educational systems support that, that narrowing down. You're either in the humanities or in the science, or, you know, they, they tend to narrow you down. And I think it also is because the old model of work was that people had one career. And mm. people don't have one career anymore, John. I really don't think they do. Yeah. Take me, for example. I've had three, right? People switch and they move. And I hope I have two more. I have a lot of years uh. left in me. And I think that we need to acknowledge the fact that people are working longer and that there are more options available. And we no longer have a 40-year career followed by retirement. We should be able to do things that excite us and challenge right. us and change us. It reminds me of that story of the interviewer asking a famous actress. who said, how was your career? She said, my dear, I've not had a career. I've just had a series of roles. <laughs> and so it's just, it's, exactly. Everything's evolving and morphing, isn't it? Right. You've done quite a lot of stuff in your life. and You've seen a lot of things. So you've got a pretty good insight into change and what's happening in the world. Let's think about what's going on and what's trending now. That's mm -hmm. our hashtag. Hashtag what's trending. What's trending. So, Kelly, what's trending? I would say to start out with that PD itself is trendy. It has become the in thing to add PD to a program. That's what students want. They want personal development. That's what employees want. They want personal development. But I think that this very trendiness leads to some very poorly designed PD programs. So what I think is that 
if it becomes a tick-boxing exercise, then it's not really part of the curriculum. And what do you mean? PD is a tick box. It's like, here's my template for my own personal growth, and I've got to sign off on these six activities, and I'll be great. Is mm-hmm. it that sort of thing? I think that's what a lot of programs are doing for so PD. If they're doing they, that, what should they be doing instead? What should they be doing? Well, I said before that within the Henley program, the PD supports the rest of the curriculum, mm-hmm. and the rest of the curriculum feeds into the PD. That is a is a structured process that I think should be part of the program. I think if there's no connection between them, then it's not going to work. So in other words, what you're saying is, I've had a lecture on economics now, and mm-hmm. now I'm having a lecture on personal development, and now I go into marketing. Right. And that separation between things is not what you're looking for. You're looking for something that's integrated, that works on you. So in other words, I'm thinking about myself, and I'm changing. My mind is growing, mm-hmm. and I'm accessing more complex knowledge, and I'm putting it together with me as well as the different knowledges I'm dealing with. Is right. it that sort of thing? Yeah, exactly. To go back to my background in multidisciplinarity, what that means really is getting two sides of a divide to talk to each other. And I would say that you could have fake and real multidisciplinarity. So the fake kind is where you have a psychologist who needs the mathematician to do their statistics. And they say, well, we work together. We're multidisciplinary. But that's fake. It's only real if the mathematician gets something out of it, too. So if the project that they're working on is of interest and supports both sides, uh, it's of interest to the mathematician and the psychologist, then it's a real thing. And I think if you want to put PD into your program, then you want it to be that the two sides are talking to each other, right? That there's some kind of communication between them, and that makes it real. Mm -hmm. And this brings me to something else that's trendy. So what's really trendy right now is this idea of authentic leadership, being authentic as a leader. And there's a lot of talk about walking the walk and talking the talk. So it's like and, assumed authenticity. Hey, look being, at me. Look how authentic I am, guys. Yeah. Exactly. But yeah. the thing is that you cannot be authentic if you don't have a really deep self-awareness and have spent the time on, on critical reflection mm. of yourself. Authenticity comes from a place deep inside. So what do you mean and, by critical reflection? Is this like critical like, hey, how bad I am? Or you mean something else, don't you? No, no, I mean something else. So I would say two of the basic points about critical reflection. One of them is being aware of perspective. Mm. So when we see anything, we see it through a lens. And we have to acknowledge the fact that we're seeing things through our own lens and that everyone else is seeing things through their own lens, through their own perspective. And it's only by acknowledging the fact that there are these many different perspectives that you can actually get a look at what's there. So part of critical reflection is understanding that there's perspective underlying So you talk about multidisciplinarity, but this is multi-perspective viewing. You've got to be able to assume other people's perspectives so you can get a a better understanding of the big picture. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. And imagine a manager sitting around a table Mm -hmm. trying to conduct a conversation. There are different perspectives at the table. And if you're not aware of the fact that there are different perspectives you can really mess up. <laughs> and, you know, part of that has to do with vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Part of it has to be with, you know, being on the same page. But just being aware of this concept of perspective. And the other thing is being able to get down to what your basic assumptions are, mm-hmm. right? So underlying the perspective is a set of assumptions. And it takes reflection 
to understand what assumptions you're bringing to so a you task have a and bringing your to own a table. Assumptions, yes, and these assumptions they come from the very earliest stages mm. of childhood, and they're brought in by society. So many of them are cultural. They come from your family background, from your character, from your values, from a whole range of things. And they can be expanded upon. Most people are not aware of their underlying assumptions until they travel. It's getting outside of your comfort zone that makes you aware of things. Getting <laughs> married could be a good way to do it, too. So these things, perspective and assumptions, underlying assumptions, are one of the things that underlie critical reflection. Another really important component is time. Businesses want to have leaders who have a big picture outlook. Mm. They want leaders who can take a systemic look at a business, who are not just looking at sort of the, the analytical breakdown of what problems are, but who can look at things inside the bigger picture. But I don't think that many businesses understand that that kind of ability takes time, that that takes critical reflection, and that needs time to do. And I actually think that's one of the greatest things about PD on the MBA program. It's, it's like a little gift of time. Mm. It's, it's, it's a little gift that we give to our students that says, here is time that you have for reflecting on yourself and your assumptions and, and what makes you authentic. We talk about personal branding, and, and a lot of that is about how the outside world perceives us. And what I really want students to think about is, is more of an inside-out view of that. What is it that's inside you, and how do you project that out to the world? How do you get that out there? How do you get people to see it? And, and, that's, sorry, and that's what you say is authenticity, then, is the real authenticity based on deep critical reflection, which checks your own assumptions, mm -hmm. is able to take in and subsume other people's points of view so you can understand where you stand in relation to them, so you don't take yourself necessarily too seriously. Absolutely. You understand your own fallibility, but also it gives you the, the courage to still act and, and, and work with people and be something that people resonate with as something we would call authentic. Absolutely. I couldn't have said it better myself, John. That was really You put that all those words really into my good. mind. Yeah. <laughs> um, the thing about authenticity, if, if you have a leader or a manager who is authentic, people recognize it. Mm. And you respect someone who's authentic. Mm. And one of the things that's interesting is that authenticity is not likability. There's a difference between likable and being authentic. You don't have to be likable to be authentic. But to be authentic, you have to be real. What you have to be projecting is what's inside you, something from a deep level of self-awareness. And if you have that, people will respect what you're saying. So what you're saying then is this sort of authenticity that grounds you, makes you act in the right way. Mm -hmm. You're not necessarily liked for it. People are connecting with it mm -hmm. because they sense you yourself and you're doing the right thing. So there's respect that comes from mm -hmm. authenticity. Whereas fake authenticity is smelt out by people and rejected quite quickly. Exactly. And I think that if you're in a, an environment, say in an MBA, where they're trying to say to you, be an authentic leader, but they don't give you the time and the skills and the toolbox that you need in order to self-examine and critically self-examine who you are and how you got there, then you won't project that authenticity. So what else is trending, Kelly? I think that this idea that PD is very popular means that a lot of PD programs are being developed very, very quickly and on the fly, not just in MBAs, but in, in corporate environments, too, where people are brought in to teach PD components. And one of the things that I dislike about that and that I think is trendy is that 
it's very popular to bring in a standardized testing approach where you'll have some test, some task that you'll have people do, which will then tell them who they're supposed to be. Like a Myers-Briggs, which will tell you, you know, what your personality type thing. is Surely, supposed to be. Surely, I mean, you've got a big data set and, and you're finding out differences between people and you're typing them, you're getting insight into who you are. How could that be bad? I think that if you use that as a tool for self-reflection and you take it with a grain of salt, it could be a very useful thing. But what I think is that if you tell someone, here is your personality characteristic, that what you've done there is you've put them in a box. As soon as you put someone in a box, then you're limiting them. And I think that when companies use these tools in order to decide where people should be in the organization, that's bad enough. But I think if you take it in a PD program and you say to someone, okay, you've done this test, we've determined that you're an introvert and not an extrovert. And then that person says, oh, okay, so maybe I shouldn't be doing the presentations. Maybe I should do it, be doing the background work. Maybe I shouldn't be doing negotiation because that's not something I'm good at. Maybe I won't be good at conflict resolution. Mm. Not only are you allowing other people to limit you, but you're limiting yourself. But you're taking deep psychological constructs like introversion and extroversion, mm -hmm. which have reams written about them yes. and have very different understandings. Mm -hmm. And you're telling people you're an introvert. And what people are, are relating to is this rather stigmatized version of introversion, which is shy, withdrawn, socially inept, right. which is not true at all, is it? There's been some great books written on it. Uh, I don't know who was oh, the yes, author yeah. of uh, I believe it's Susan McCain wrote a book called That's Quiet. Right. That's it. Wonderful book about, yeah. about introversion and, and the power of, yeah. of introverts in a business mm. environment. Yes. And I think this applies not only to standardized tests, but also to models in general. MBAs mm. are big on models. You go to an mm. MBA program and you learn models. And what I try to tell people is that models are tools. They are trying to get you to see a situation in a particular way. But if the model limits the way you see it, if what you see is what the model tells you that you're supposed to see, then you're not using it critically. And I think the same thing applies to these personality tasks, where if when you look at yourself, what you see is what it tells you you're going to see, you're not using it appropriately, right? You're using it to close yourself in rather than to open yourself out. But that's a really interesting point you're making about learning in general, because people may go to an MBA and mm -hmm. take on all the jargon and use the models and, and frameworks that they're given and start talking to people about these things as if they held truth. Mm -hmm. But of course, models and frameworks don't hold truth, do they? Exactly. They're just frames you put on your perception. That's that right. right. And, and, and they change a lot. Uh, Minsberg wrote a very good book where he talked about the uh, models of leadership and how some models have become popular and then fallen out of fashion over, over the mm -hmm. years and different ones come in. So models themselves become trendy, right? A model is not a truth. It puts a framework on a situation mm -hmm. that is supposed to direct you so that you can see things that should be seen. But each model is applicable to only certain situations. And part of doing the MBA, it's not just learning the models, it's learning where to apply them. And it's learning that they're not the truth of everything. That well, the critical thing to me is you use a model mm. one day and you'll get an answer or framework. Mm. You'll use it the next day and you've moved on. Your perception is enriched. You'll actually, you'll actually come out with a different answer using the same model. Is that right? right? Yes, Which absolutely. Which means that it's not in the model, but how you use it. Mm -hmm. Minsberg, you mentioned, is one of my favorite academics, right. Henry Minsberg, oh, Canadian. Mine too. Mine too. And he wrote that book, yes. Managers Not MBAs, one of my favorites. It's a yeah. brilliant book, yeah. yes. And actually, that book is very interesting because mm. he talks about the 
science of management, the mm. craft of management, and the art of management, and how important it is that all three of those are integrated. And, and one of his claims is that MBAs don't appreciate enough the craft of management. And that's one of the things that's really interesting in the context of the exec MBA, mm. because the students in the class do have experience of management. They do have hands-on experience. And Mintzberg's point is that the MBA needs to leverage that. And I actually think that's a really important mm. aspect of the model that we use at Henley, which is very integrative and very facilitative and which allows the cohort so, yeah. to learn from each other. I mean, so it even goes a bit further, doesn't it? He? he says that you can't learn management on an MBA because it's a craft done through practice. But I think it's interesting that personal development work you're talking about mm. is integrated through the program. The people on the executive MBAs are coming to learn in short bursts, but then going back to work to apply right. and doing projects on their real work as mm -hmm. well. So maybe really you can start to learn management on an MBA as well as all the cognitive disciplines as you go through the path. Would you say that's true? Well, yes. And in fact, if you look at this book by Mensberg, he gives a, a series of ideas of how to better structure the curriculum of an MBA. And at least half of them are based on building reflection into the MBA. What do you love most about what you do? And, and what's next for Dr. Kelly Sloan? Hmm. I absolutely love being part of people's journey. Mm. I, I like people. I like hearing their stories. I like feeling that I can help them set a direction. I like that part of my job is about helping them find what makes them fulfilled. And that's exciting. That's happy. I like that idea. And I think what's in the future, I'd like to keep teaching. I'd like to do research. I'm interested in the international aspects of personal development, how it differs in different parts of the world, which Henley gives me the opportunity to explore. On my own time, I'm a blogger, so I, I love blogging. I blog as, as part of my hobby. But I've been uh, thinking... What's your blog called? Oh, it's called Nitigating Circumstances. It's a hobby blog. It's about knitting. But I am mitigating circumstances. circumstances. You can tell we'll the linguistics behind that. Yeah. But I'm thinking of starting a new blog about personal development in management learning, which will focus in part about issues about language in personal development and in business, and also looking at differences across international boundaries. Well, I'm going to look forward to that, and I'm sure lots of other people will. So that's Dr. Kelly Sloan, a gifted and passionate polyglot, polymath, multidisciplinary educator on the personal development program and much more, neuroscientist, linguistic professor who is here in South Africa at the moment and will be coming back on a number of occasions to run our personal development programs on the Henley MBA. It's been such a pleasure talking to you and listening Thank to your you, story. Thank you, John. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. And so, goodbye for today. This is me, John Fosterpelli, Dean of Henley Africa, signing off. And if you'd like to follow us on hashtag What's Trending on Henley Business Radio, please pass on the word. And we look forward to listening to more stories and talk to more people shortly. Do you want to be part of the conversation? Follow, comment, and message Henley Business School and Henley Business Radio on your favorite social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn.